So after I had been practicing the Dharma for about eight years, when I was in my uh, mid-twenties, for a variety of reasons, I decided that I really didn't know what it was all about. That while I did the best I could in practice, I really under—I really didn't understand um, much about the Dharma or even really how to practice very skillfully. But I had a lot of um, some kind of faith. And I had come to that faith through, I think, accident, really. I was living in a commune uh, up in central Maine after surviving university. I was in recovery from education. Mm-hmm. And, and um, a friend of mine saw a book called Beginning to See, little one-liners about mindfulness. And in the back it had an address to write for information. So she wrote for information and found out that there was a retreat going on in central Maine at that very time, the last two weeks of which was going to be open to new students. So she decided that she was going to go to this uh, retreat and I'd heard about it and I decided, well, that's, I'd like to do that. And up to that point in time, I, I had no spiritual interest or dharma interest. I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I didn't know anyone who meditated. I didn't have any interest in meditation. I was interested in the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd. <laughs> and it was just the furthest thing from my mind. But she was going to this two weeks. I thought she said, it was something like a resort. <laughs> so, so we drove to uh, this old Catholic monastery, and we um, we went in to the uh, entry entry. And on one side, uh, on the left, there was a dining room that was empty, and it said, "New students will meet at." six o'clock or four o'clock, whatever it was. We were there a little early. And on the right-hand side was uh, the chapel. And so we looked at the schedule on the door of the chapel. We looked in and saw there were people sitting there. And we looked at the schedule and said, you know, like here, four o'clock, wake up, sit, walk, breakfast, sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, tea, sit, walk, 7.30, talk, sit, walk, go to bed. And we said... We looked at each other and said, well, at least we get an hour a day to talk. (laughs) What it really meant is we got an hour a day to listen. So here we are. But, uh, you know, I set up back for two weeks. It was the last two weeks of the first three-month course. Uh, And um, I set up back, and my body was in excruciating pain, and my mind wasn't any better. It It was a mess. But something happened. I, you know, after that uh, retreat, uh, all I wanted to do was more retreats. And that's what I did for a number of years. And even after eight years, it wasn't very, 
wasn't very adept at it. And so I decided that I really needed to get with the program, so I made the decision to go to Burma to uh, meditate until I didn't want to meditate anymore. And I thought it'd be better to do it in uh, a Buddhist country where everybody, I, I was interested in seeing what a Buddhist country was like, and I wanted to ordain as a monk. So I did. So I went to this monastery, and it's a huge monastery in central Rangoon. And it was the first time I'd been out of the United States, out of New England, almost. So it was foreign. It was very foreign. I mean, not just the climate and the food and the, uh, the language, but just everything, everything about it was just not familiar and pretty scary actually for me. I was, I was pretty protected, naive, and um, pretty, pretty, I was pretty uncomfortable. So I went to the monastery and, you know, the schedule is, like I mentioned, alternate hours of sitting and walking 20 hours a day. So, no talking also. So there's, it was it was so strange. It was so I felt alone. I felt uh, isolated. I felt uh, not unsure. I knew why I was there. I wanted to practice. And there's one thing that that uh, sticks out in my mind is as serving as the um, confirmation that it was okay to be there. So at this particular center, there's a wake up and there's a sitting before breakfast. Breakfast is at 5.30 in the morning. So there's a sitting before breakfast. And at the end of the sitting, at around just before breakfast, I would come out of the meditation hall and stand beside the the cottage of my teacher, Saito Upandita, and I would wait there for the, the gong at the top of the hill where the dining room was to signal that... Um, we could we could go to go to breakfast, but before between the end of the sitting and before the gong from the dining room, all of the meditation halls of the four of the uh, Burmese would chant the refuges and precepts and a little bit of loving kindness. So there was this one meditation hall up close to the dining room, and it could hold about fifteen hundred women. Burmese women. And so there were there would be a few hundred or maybe fifteen hundred sometimes women and they would start chanting, uh, you know, at five forty, five fifteen in the morning. And Burmese women, when they chant the refuges and precepts, they are very devout and they are very energetic and they are loud. It's like soul music. So I'd listen to you know, these women chanting and I didn't know the refuges and precepts at the time. I, I was just, I didn't know the chant. And they'd be, you know, a few minutes into their chant, and another meditation hall full of women off to the left, uh, 500 in that hall, they would start chanting. Same, same chant, but they were just behind by 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And that was a two-floor meditation hall, so the top floor would start chanting that 500 women and then the bottom floor would start chanting a little later and there's another 500 women. And then there's a meditation hall of men between 
of them and where I was, and that could hold about 1,200. And there was another meditation hall of monks and men further beyond me, and that could hold another 1,000. So there, there was a lot of people at this meditation center. And sometimes I'd be standing there in the morning, and, you know, two, three, four thousand people are just chanting with extreme devotion and soul, if there is such a thing, you know, but real heart. Uh, their faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma Sangha, their um, devotion, their um, aspiration, and it was just so compelling. Because I got it that they were doing, or they were expressing what I felt in being there. That there was this something of value, without me knowing exactly what it was, that the, that the Dharma and the practice was offering me. And so I saw how similar I was to them, or I felt how similar I was to them, and I, and I, and I recognized how universal, and how profound, and how timeless this uh, taking refuge and appreciating the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha really was. So it was a, a uh, it was like being welcomed home when I got it, what was going on, when I felt really what was going on there. And it really, um, and I think maybe this was the most distinctive characteristic of practicing in, in Burma that was not available to me at that time in the, in the U.S., and that is that everyone there has absolute, unshakable faith that this practice is the most important thing you can do with your life. And, and they know that anyone who practices will, will come to this understanding and benefit. And so it didn't matter who they were. They could be the, the woman that swept the street or the fellow that cleaned the toilets or whatever. They knew. They were so happy to have me and other foreigners there practicing, that it was just so supportive. Um, so when I started teaching retreats, leading retreats like this, I, I thought it was really important to uh, chant the refuges and precepts because, as I mentioned earlier today, I think it touches some part of our heart that Sometimes the teachings themselves don't, and maybe the practice doesn't for a while. So I think it's really important. Uh, it's a good support. I find it a good support. So I want to speak a little bit about the refuges as a practice, really. Because, as you know, here we, we chant them in the morning. And, you know, as acknowledged, it's foreign language that we don't really understand. And what's the purpose of it? And... Uh, I have found it to be a great support, actually, for for practice, and actually um, now understand the the refuges as a, an aspiration. It's like I aspire to find refuge. I aspire to feel that the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha are a refuge. So I want to talk about them uh, in that way. How when you chant you can imbue your chanting with, uh, or infuse it with value more than just 
exercising your vocal cords. So, to take refuge in the Buddha, we have to know something about the Buddha. And it's hard to really grasp, I think, what the Buddha is, or who the Buddha was, or what the Buddha did, um, until we look at our own mind. And when we look at our own mind, we get a glimpse of what is going on here, and how chaotic, and how inscrutable, and how much suffering there is in the mind. And then you hear, you hear, the Buddha was, uh, had freed his mind from suffering. It's, it's, it sounds incomprehensible. I mean, like, what do you mean? <laughs> How did that happen? And it didn't happen in a single lifetime. You know, it is said that the Buddha, you know, had practiced as a bodhisattva for hundreds of lifetimes, developing the qualities of heart and mind that allowed him to awaken. And these qualities of heart and mind are just to. affirm and remind you, they're not particularly Buddhist. You know, they're truthfulness, energy, renunciation, resolve in the mind, loving-kindness, equanimity, wisdom, generosity, living in harmony with others. There's nothing Buddhist about They're not even exotic. They're not even esoteric. They're, they are the qualities of good human being in any society. And yet... This, this man, this person, developed them to such a degree in his own heart that they became the default setting of his mind, the first recourse of his mind. Whenever, in any situation, you know, no matter how challenging or how threatening or how you know, uh, oppressive it was, his mind would first go to loving-kindness, understanding, generosity, living in harmony. And so we can see, when we, when we look at our own mind, and we see, wow, our, our first recourse to difficulty is aversion, blame, disappointment, frustration, you know, neediness, greediness. And we can begin to see what the, what the challenge of transforming the mind from place of suffering to a place of freedom or liberation really is. So even without understanding all that the Bodhisattva had to go through, when we just begin to understand a little bit about the Buddha, we can see that here was truly a human being that was extraordinary, had done, some, had done something really extraordinary. And it's important to, to, I think, to understand that the Buddha was a human being. You know, it's not like he was a god or he was not some super, super normal. I guess you'd say he was super normal. He was normal and he was super normal. So when we, when we understand this and we recognize in our own practice how much courage it takes to look at your own mind, how much patience it takes to look at your own mind, how much energy it takes to bear with what we what we see here oh, we can begin to understand well here was a here was a human being that really had done something 
special. So we can see that in taking refuge in the Buddha as a human being, we're really recognizing that here is someone like ourselves that showed us something that showed us the, uh, the development of the human potential, I think, that we may not see around us. But historically, we can know this. Of course, the Buddha passed away. The Buddha is no longer living. Um, while the teachings live on, they're only as alive as we make them within our own heart. <clears throat> So when we realize about the, about the Buddha, then we look for uh, teachers who most mm, emulate, embody, manifest what we understand of the Buddha. And uh, whether you look to Asia for uh, examples of good practitioners or you find some resemblance of some qualities in Western teachers, to think, and to know, to see that, oh, this is possible, there's something possible through the development of the mind, can really um, give us faith to, to um, undertake this practice ourselves. But when we say to take a refuge in the Buddha, we're really taking refuge in <coughs> that there was this human being, and that we also recognize that we have the potential within ourselves. So we have the potential to be awake. And we can see it in a moment. We can see it over the course of years of practice. We can see that we can wake it up. And while we may not have perfected the potential, we've at least made a decision to try to develop this potential within ourselves. And when we meet the challenges that we inevitably do, uh, to remember, just to remember, someone has shown us the way. There, there, it is possible. It is possible. And it can be really instructive to read uh, stories about the Buddha's, the Bodhisattva's uh, challenges, and then the Buddha's challenges too. So there's the Buddha as a, a human being, there's the Buddha within as the potential to awaken. So when we take refuge in the, the potential to awaken, we need to remind ourselves frequently, you know, especially when we're <coughs> struggling with the dark side of our minds, uh, we have the potential to awaken. And while we may not feel it manifesting right now, if we take refuge in it, or if we have faith in that possibility, then we can keep going. When we know more about the Buddha, we, we can read that uh, after his awakening, after his realization of the truth, which liberated his mind from suffering and the causes of suffering, he considered what to do with his life. He was uh, 35 at the time. He'd been a, lived pretty regally 
for 29 years. He'd lived as an ascetic, practicing uh, severe disciplines, spiritual disciplines. Learned all that could be learned from the teachers of his day. Finally awoke to the truth and freed his mind, freed his heart from suffering. And then he thought that he would just kind of wander away into the Himalaya somewhere and enjoy the, the fruits of the liberated mind. And, and you know what? We can all understand why that might look pretty attractive. <laughs> but he was prevailed upon by others to share what he had learned. And so he... And this is, this is extraordinary, actually. So he chose to teach what he had realized... And he spent 45 years teaching the whole spectrum of society in his day. Kings and royalty as well as beggars and merchants and military people. He he spoke and taught to everyone. And he was not without challenge. You know, you can imagine directing a community and teaching hundreds, thousands of people what a challenge it would be for uh, 45 years. And he, he, he ran into all kinds of problems and troublemakers. You know, people that were accusing him of all kinds of things, people trying to kill him, people trying to disrupt his uh, teachings and the organization of monks and nuns. And it was just horrendous. And so you think, why did he do that? I mean, he's off, he's off the hook. But it's out of compassion. And I think that this is, this is something that's slowly dawning on me too, is to realize that as we look at our own minds, and as we disentangle our own hearts from suffering, you notice other suffering more acutely, more pervasively, more sensitively, and it just becomes impossible to avoid, deny, minimize doing something about it, whatever you can do. Now, we're here, we're doing our practice. It may seem like we're just navel-gazing and kind of just being totally self-preoccupied. And we are. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have benefit for others. Because to the degree that we practice awakened, awakening our mind... And we begin to understand suffering, we begin to understand the causes of our suffering, we begin to disentangle our hearts from suffering. We know this about ourselves, and we know this about others. And so as we develop these qualities of patience, kindness, truthfulness, energy, resolve, renunciation in our heart, these qualities manifest in our life. The way we live our life, you don't have to preach the Dharma, you don't have to go teach the Dharma. The way you live is an expression of the Dharma. And everyone that you live with, everyone that you come in contact with, in your family, in your professional work, in your society, your social um, uh, commitments, everyone gets the benefit of the work we do. And in this way, the work that we're doing here while it is very self-occupied, so to speak, it's actually a gift of generosity to others to, to work on our own hearts and then to offer our understanding, the way, that way of life, that commitment to the truth, to others 
that we share life with. So it's out of compassion, really, that the Buddha undertook all the practice that he did and the teaching that he shared after, after his awakening. So as we, as we take refuge, as we aspire to take refuge in the Buddha, sometimes we have to hear the teachings, and even though they're not obvious or they're counterintuitive, you know, we've heard something of the teachings, we've practiced with some faith, and what we don't yet understand, we may have, let's say, taking, the ref, taking uh, refuge in the Buddha, is we can, we can feel safe in listening, practicing, considering, holding open the possibility that what the Buddha taught is true, is beneficial, even if we haven't been able to confirm it all for ourselves. The second refuge is taking refuge in the Dharma. Now the Dharma has a few meanings to consider. The first is that the Dharma is the way things are, the way things have come to be, the uh, natural laws governing the unfolding of conditions in the universe. So when we understand, oh, the Dharma is the truth, it's the lawfulness of um, the unfolding of the universe. When we begin to understand this, we begin to understand that there's no accidents in life. Things don't happen for no reason. Things happen due to causes and conditions, just like all of the science that we know. There's a science to the mind also which we're slowly, we will slowly come to know as we practice. So we could say that the Dharma is really an expression of the natural laws that are in operation, the cause and effect um, unfolding of the universe. And while we may not understand all the causes and conditions giving rise to this moment's experience, we may not understand why am I suffering in this way, why is it happening this way, we can be sure that it's not accidental, that there are deep-rooted causes and conditions, innumerable invisible threads, you might say, into the past that are guiding, we might say, the unfolding of our life. And just as we know that if you plant an apple seed, you don't get a mango tree, right? It just doesn't work that way. So too, we come to understand that what we plant in our heart, in our minds, grows in a lawful direction. But <clears throat> acknowledging the way it is is not easy. And acknowledging that there's no mistakes is not easy. Uh, it takes a lot of forbearance of uh, painful, painful conditions. So it takes a lot of patience, really, to encourage, to open to uh, the truth as it is being experienced through awareness, and to understand that this is the way it is. 
this is the way things have come to be due to causes and conditions. No one to blame for it, not even ourselves. <clears throat> and when we see that, then we begin to open to a larger understanding than our little self-preoccupied um, pleasure. So, we can see this in um, the unfolding of our commitment to living in harmony with one another. You know the precepts. You know the precepts, uh, not harming by killing, stealing, sexual, uh, inappropriate sexual activity, or truth-telling, and use of intoxicants. We might see these as the five headlines of suffering, because these are areas of our life that we've all, at different times, have experienced suffering with. Whether it's our own acting out or someone else's acting out, we're all, we've all seen that there's just a whole catalog of suffering every day from not being able to live in harmony with the, with the precepts. And as we look deeply within our own hearts in practice like this, we also see our own. You know, I don't know what each of you have seen today, but, you know, the places of pain in our own life are often uh, have something to do with the precepts not being uh, kept. And so when we discover in our own hearts that, you know, our behavior has caused us pain, it's caused others pain, and we have to accept that, we can begin to understand, oh, this is, this is a lawful unfolding. You know, it's not a mistake. If we act out, uh, it's, there's nobody to blame. This is just the, the, the natural results of acting out uh, in this way. But with our hopefully with our increasing awareness and clarity and tranquility and understanding, we'll start to live more in harmony, more in alignment with the Dharma, the way things are, rather than trying to uh, make things be the way we want. So the second meaning of the word Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. And I've mentioned that some of what we've heard of the teachings of the Buddha we can accept quite readily, and we say, yeah, this... I mean, I know when I first heard the uh, the first Dharma talks of the first retreat I went to, I heard them and I said, this is what I've always known. This is what I've always believed. This is, this is the way it is for me, even though I'd never read it, never heard it, didn't know anything about it. Because the Dharma is the expression of the way things are. And if there's a skillful teacher expressing the way things are as they have observed them, we will all resonate with it if we've looked at our own life, if we've been paying attention to our own life. And so I recognize that, that, yeah, the teachings of the Buddha, as expressed in the teachers that I had, really resonated with my own understanding. But there are some things that the Buddha says that <laughs> not easy to accept, a little difficult. Maybe counterintuitive. So when we when we aspire to take refuge in the Dharma, we're not saying, "I believe what the Buddha taught." We're saying, "I'm willing to check it out," <laughs> because we don't know for ourselves. We can't say for ourselves until we until we really practice. 
And for some of that period of time, we're not going to know for sure. You know, the Buddha talks about the possibility of the end of suffering. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We don't know, do we? We're practicing. We see we see some movement in that direction, but we don't know for sure. And so when we when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're saying, well, I'm hoping to find, you know, a safe haven in the teachings of the Buddha. I'm aspiring to to believe. I'm aspiring to practice in a way that I would have faith. So in that way, also the the taking of the refuge is really an uh, an acknowledgement of our aspiration. We aspire to recognize this potential of awakening within us. We aspire to uh, realize the uh, the truth of what the Buddha taught. One time the Buddha was walking in the forest with some of his uh, monks and nuns and he reached down into the forest floor and he picked up a handful of leaves well-known story and he said which is greater the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forest and of course they were all fully enlightened so they knew the answer <laughs> there's more leaves in the forest he said yes but the leaves in my hand are like the, the knowledge that I have offered you the leaves in the forest are like the knowledge I have but the leaves in the forest are what I've been able to offer you but he said that just this much is enough if you practice to free your heart from suffering. He said that the Buddha could know anything that he put his mind to. Anything. Which is pretty phenomenal for whatever knowledge was available in those, in those days. But that what he taught was such a small part of what he knew. And yet it was what was required if we wanted to hear practice and free our own hearts from suffering. The Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha are, and, the, and the Buddha taught should not be accepted as dogma. Now, sometimes we, we hear it and we don't accept it as dogma. Sometimes we try to accept it as dogma. But I think the quality of the Dharma, the quality of the, the Buddha's teachings that is most um, inviting to we Westerners who are so uh, really scientific-minded, actually, is this quality of ehipasiko, meaning listen, hear the Dharma, check it out for yourself. Rather than accepting it on faith, this is not a faith-based uh, practice. It's good to have some confidence in faith, but it's not the end-all. If we have faith, we need to practice in order to confirm it. And this is what the, the, the Dharma invites us to. Check it out. Come and see for yourself. And that's why we actually have to practice. We can't just read the book, believe what we read, and have sufficient uh, faith, or have the the effect of have the, having the book or the knowledge liberate our mind. We actually have to do the work. And this, is, this takes faith. This takes believing enough or suspending, suspending your doubt, actually, that the Dharma is useful, beneficial. 
The third meaning of the word, uh, the Dharma, is the Dharma is anything that we experience. So when we experience the sensations in the body of pain, that's a Dharma. When we experience thoughts in the mind, that's a Dharma. When we experience uh, sounds in the room, that's a Dharma. Everything is a Dharma because it is the way things are at that time, at that moment. So when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're also aspiring to take refuge in our own personal experience in each, each moment. And that, this may be the hardest Dharma to, to take refuge in. But what it, what, it, what it refers to is the understanding that we can, to, to aspire to take refuge in the Dharma means to understand that this experience right now is what I need to know what I need to be experiencing, what I can learn from. It's, it, it's not somewhere else. If we can't find the truth in, or freedom in this experience, where do we think we're going to find it? So whether it's painful or understood, gross or subtle, familiar or novel, this moment's experience is the very place to establish this, can I have faith in this? Can I, can I find a safe place in this? Where am I going to find a refuge in this moment's experience? But that's what it means. That's what we aspire to when we, when we take refuge in the Dharma. Because we aspire to be able to feel safe, secure, with every experience we have in life. That takes some work. One of my favorite poets recently passed away, I think just last year, Galway Canal, had this uh, prayer, which is a real expression of faith in the Dharma. He writes, Whatever happens, whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever happens... Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. And this is an expression of really wanting to be with the way things are, wanting to find this moment's experience to be adequate, to live in harmony with the way things are, and let that be good enough. So we take refuge in the Buddha, as a person, as a potential within ourself, as a teacher of wisdom and compassion. We take refuge in the Dharma, or we aspire to take refuge in the Dharma as the lawfulness of the unfolding of life, as the teachings of the Buddha, pointing to the way things are, and as the Dharma as each moment's experience in our life. The third refuge is taking refuge in the Sangha. I always had a very difficult time taking refuge in the Sangha. I thought it meant taking refuge in the people that were practice, I was practicing with on retreat. And I, 
didn't know that I wanted to take refuge in them. <laughs> you know, this is a, this is a real personal view, and uh, I guess being from New England and being very self-reliant, and uh, there's a certain strain of thinking that it would be a sign of uh, inadequacy to rely on others. This is this is very New England, and so there's a there's a real sense of being uh, alone and doing it on your own, and can't rely on anyone else. There's some, you know, there's some of that in everyone, in all of us, a certain self-reliance, but that's not really what taking refuge in or finding refuge in the sangha really means. Now, when we say sangha, there are, there are a few different um, sanghas to talk about. There's the sangha of this community, this this 50 people here in this retreat for a week. We're all practicing together. We're being supported by other members of the sangha that are doing the cooking and the cleaning and the managing of the place. And as a whole, we are a small community called the sangha, practicing the Dharma. There's also the worldwide Sangha. There are men and women all over the world, uh, not just in Burma, Thailand, and Sri Lanka, but all over the world practicing um, their faith in the Dharma. And so we're part of that larger community also. A more refined or a more exclusive view of the Sangha is those who, those men and women who've ordained as monks and nuns. And that's uh, a more traditional understanding of the Sangha. In fact, individual monks are called Sanghas. And they too are part of the uh, fabric of this Dharma community. Then maybe the a more refined uh, even definition of Sangha is those who have practiced the teachings and have realized some degree of awakening. In this tradition, there's four stages of awakening. I won't get into the details, but to have reached, to have realized one or two or three of those stages of awakening is considered their own sangha, the Ariya sangha, or the awaken, the awakening sangha. And then, of course, the Buddha and other fully awake beings are considered the most uh, reliable sangha, or those that we want to take refuge in. So, having heard that, um, you know, I was telling you about this monastery I was staying in in Burma. We went to breakfast every morning. Well, in the second, uh, the first weekend of December every year, they used to have a festival. And I was at the Mahasi Sayadaw Meditation Center, and I spoke about Mahasi Sayadaw last night. <clears throat> And after he passed away, every year, in the first weekend of December, they would have a festival. And it was a big festival to uh, pay respects to him and honor his teachings. And so there were many different meditation centers in Burma that were practicing where this, this particular method was taught. And so they would invite the senior monks from each of these different meditation centers. So four or five hundred senior monks would come to the meditation center in Rangoon and they would all come with 
a handful of devotees and followers and hangers-oners, people who were there to support them, or students. And there'd be another hundred senior nuns from this tradition. And so the center, the meditation center, filled up with, you know, a thousand or so monks and nuns and their supporters. And for five days, it was just like a festival, um, a Mahasi Dhamma festival. And it was, a lot of people from Rangoon came, and it was just, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people that were just milling about for five days. And the Dharma talks would start over the loudspeaker at five o'clock in the morning, and they would go till 10 o'clock at night, every day. And every hour, there was a different monk giving a Dharma talk. And so there was just a lot of energy, and there was just a lot of uh, joy, there was a lot of reconnecting with you know, all the elders of the tradition. It was really a, a festive time. So when monks get together, like in that situation, they always do things in terms of seniority. Those who've been a monk the longest get to go first, or get to sit in the front, or whatever it is. So when the breakfast gong rang at the top of the hill, one of the monks who ran the meditation center, who was resident, ran the meditation center, he would step out into the roadway and he would say, 65 wasa. And that meant any monk who'd been a monk for 65 years, and you can only ordain when you're 20, that means he was at least 85. Any monk who was 85 could go to breakfast. And there might be one kind of walking with his cane, come out of the shadows and start walking up the hill. 64 wasa. Maybe, <laughs> maybe another one. You know. And it would go down the line. And the elders would be, you know, the, the lay people were, you know, lined up on both sides, just, you know, paying respects to the monks when they went to, went to eat. 63, 62, and down through the line. And, of course, there were very few with that had that many years as a monk. But when they got down to 30 or 20 wasa, having been a monk for 20 or 30 years, being 50 or 60 years old, something like that, then there was 40 or 50 years old. There were quite a few. There would be dozens that would step out into the, to the uh, roadway and, and follow, follow the monks who were leading. And then, you know, as they got down to Tenwasa, that was the... They didn't allow Burmese monks to come. They didn't have room for them if they had less than ten wasas. They had to have at least ten wasa. Ten, ten years. Wasa means the three-month retreat that monks do annually, the range retreat. But because there were some foreigners there, they would continue down with, you know, eight, seven, six, five. When they when they said two wasa, then I could, I could get in the line. <laughs> so... When I would get into the line, I was the last person in the line, the last monk in the line. And I would think, wow, I'm the last one. <laughs> but as I was walking in this line, I would look at the line in front of me and it would go up the hill and around the corner of the big meditation, the woman's meditation hall. And it was always misty in the, in, in the winter. It was always misty. Uh, in the morning, so I'd look ahead of the, look ahead of me, and the line would go around the corner and out of sight into the dining room behind the meditation hall. 
And I would think, somewhere up at the head of that line is the Buddha. 2,500 years ago. And that line of monks has been continuous ever since. Because the Buddha practiced, he realized the truth, liberated his mind, and he turned to the other spiritual seekers around him and said, if you can see things this way, this is the right view. If you can see things this way, try to see things this way. If you do, you'll free your mind. They listened, they practiced, they realized, and they shared their teaching with those who were around them. Year after year, century after century, for 2,500 years. And it had come down the line, it had reached Mahasi Sayadaw, and Mahasi Sayadaw taught Sayadaw Upandita, and Sayadaw Upandita had taught me, and I was at the end of the line. I thought. It's quite a line. But I'm not at the end of the line anymore. Because I'm offering the teachings to you. Now it is our generation that has to hear these teachings, practice these teachings, realize these teachings, so that we can share them with future generations. Because there are untold numbers of beings yet to be born who are going to want to hear these teachings, who are going to want to understand, as we do, the power of the Dharma to free the heart from suffering. And so when I connect with this as the taking refuge in the Sangha, well, I take refuge in the Sangha starting from the Buddha. I also take refuge in the Sangha that's sitting in front of me. Because we are the, the heirs. We're the heirs of these 2,500 years of practice and we are the benefactors of future generations. That's the Sangha. So, when we, when we take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, and we chant in the morning, you know, these few, few words in foreign language, it's not just mumbo-jumbo. If you can remember what I've said, and you can recall and, and, and connect with your own uh, aspiration and what the Buddha means to you, and your own potential to awaken it, or what the Dharma means to you, or the teachings of the Buddha mean to you, or your own experience, or the Sangha, whatever Sangha you resonate with, when you aspire to find a place of safety and security in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, it's much larger than your bank account. It's much larger than your, your home, your car, your career. This is, you know, the taking refuge in the Buddha and Dharma Sangha is for those, those, uh, conditions in life that can't be met by money and career. We have these needs, you know, for security, for safety, that are greater than uh, what we see in the material world around us. And it's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha that can offer some, some safety, some security, some refuge to us. So it can be a real aspirational, inspirational practice to uh, chant the refuges and precepts, or the refuges particularly, in the morning as a way of reaffirming 
our aspiration. Why are we here? What are we doing? It's not just to get over our knee pain. It's not just to kind of de-stress a little bit. It's much greater than that. It can be. If we understand this is what we're doing. So there was this old Chinese monk named Stonehouse and he lived in the 14th century as a hermit on Red Curtain Mountain. (coughs) Now he was reputed to be an exceptional uh, monk and because of his practice he was uh, elevated to the position of being the abbot of a a Zen monastery and he, he did that for a couple of years and he said, wow, this is this is no fun. <laughs> so then he retreated to this deserted uh, mountain, uh, Red Curtain Mountain, and he wrote poetry. And actually, someone from the northwest here, oh, now probably 20 years ago, went to China and found Red Curtain Mountain and found his old monastery from the 14th century. So he wrote in one poem, he said, You're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. You're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. If water drips long enough, even rock wears through. It's not true. Thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine that their minds are hard. People just imagine that their minds are hard. You know what it was like today, struggling with your mind? You know? You're bound to become a Buddha if you continue to practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.